We turn to Philippians chapter 1, the joy of fruitful ministry. I hope you find joy in serving the Lord. We begin then kind of at the end of chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 26, and we read in Jesus' name. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that we've had the privilege to read this morning, the word that we believe comes by your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding into your word. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I read a story about a little girl that went to a horse ranch with her father. And she was standing there petting this horse in the face, and she said, Daddy, this horse must be a Christian. And her father says, well, why would you say that? She said, oh, Daddy, he's got a long face. Sometimes I wonder if the kind of impression that we give of the Christian life to the world is that it's a difficult, it's a hard life, And we somehow don't know what real joy is. Long-faced Christians. And evidently, some in ministry give this impression. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Life on the Ragged Edge, says this. He says, far too many of my colleagues in ministry have begun to look like they are in ministry. (laughs) He describes it, he said, Stoop shoulders, long faces, that tired blood, overextended, I'm bearing such a burden look like the weight of the world rests upon his shoulders. He goes on to say, I recently heard about a lady who was in line at the checkout in the grocery store. She noticed a well-dressed gentleman standing behind her who looked to be especially dignified. So she asked him, do you happen to be a minister? He said, no, I'm not. I've just been sick lately. (laughs) Swindoll says, I would say that's rather revealing. I have no idea what the Apostle Paul looked like, but I don't think he was one of those long-faced Christians. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from jail, from prison. 
And yet, this epistle has been described by many as the epistle of joy. And you just put those two together. You're in prison, and yet you, you talk about all kinds of ways in which you are joyful. We, we noticed a few Sunday, Sundays ago the joy of fellowship, the first 11 verses, how he appreciated the, the fellowship he shared with those Philippian believers. Last Sunday, the joy that his imprisonment even furthered the gospel. It didn't hinder it at all. And now in our text, he, he believes that he's going to be released from prison. And he rejoices that this will result in fruitful ministry among the Philippians again. Verse 18, yes, I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And then in verse 22 he says, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So Paul's desire was to minister to others. And the expectation of fruitful ministry is what brought him joy. And I pray that that will be true in our lives, a thing that brings us joy, serving others, using the gifts that God has given us that we might encourage other people. What do we learn about fruitful ministry in this passage? I would suggest there are three things. First of all, fruitful ministry comes through the prayers of God's people. That is the foundation prayers of God's people. Paul wrote about half of the New Testament books, and in most of them he makes a request that people would pray for him. There was a man that knew very well that the success of any ministry depended upon the Lord, and that's why he wanted believers to pray for him, especially when he needed to be delivered from some very difficult Situation. Let me give you some examples. Romans 15, verse 30, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 3, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we may be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. And then notice what God did in answer to the prayers of the Corinthians. Verse 10, he says that God delivered us from a great peril of death and will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayer. So here was a man who understood how dependent he was on the prayers of God's people. I remember my dad saying many times, 
he'd say there is no power in the pulpit unless there's prayer in the pew. (laughs) And that is true. We need the prayers of God's people. Now, Paul is writing here, knowing that he is going to stand before the Roman emperor, and yet he is rejoicing that God answers prayer. He says, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. Through your prayers. There's something powerful when the church prays, isn't there? God has a way of working when we get down on our knees and we plead with Him to do something significant in our lives and ministries. Prayer is essential because we are called to do things in ministry that we can't do in ourselves. We are called to witness boldly. And we don't have the power in ourselves to do that. We're We're fearful, aren't we? Let's be honest. There's times when we are fearful of opening our mouth. We're called to love unconditionally, and we can't do that in our own strength. We're called to give sacrificially, and we can't do that in our own strength. Everything we do in ministry requires the blessing of God. And that is why we need the prayers of God's people. The church moves forward on its knees. Believe that? The church moves forward on its knees. R.W. DeHaan tells about a small town in which, this was years ago, there were no liquor stores. And eventually there was a tavern that was built right on Main Street. There were members of one church in that community started to pray all night prayer meetings. And I wouldn't suggest this, but they were praying that that building would be burned down. Sure enough, lightning struck that tavern, burned it to the ground. And so the owner of the tavern sued the congregation because he heard that they were praying that God would burn down his building. So the church hired a a lawyer. And... um, (laughs) What happened was, after deliberation, here's what the judge said. It is the opinion of this court that wherever the guilt may lie, the tavern owner is the one who really believes in prayer, while the church members do not. Now, isn't that interesting? The tavern owner, he believed in prayer. He was suing the church because he felt that that's why that building burned down. And the church, they had to hire some defense, right? Uh, We don't really believe this happened because we prayed, right? Well, do you believe in prayer? Do you really believe in prayer? We say that, right? We say we believe in prayer, but do our lives reflect that? Are we among those who would say, if all else fails, I guess I better pray about it. Or we say, all I can do is pray. Oh no. That's all we can do? Prayer should not be our last resort. It ought to be our first response, right? So the church moves forward. Fruitful ministry comes through. 
the prayers of God's people. Notice, secondly, fruitful ministry comes by the power of God's Spirit. We know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit dwells within the heart of every believer, right? In fact, Paul says if we don't have the Spirit of Christ in us, we don't, we don't belong to Him. So when you put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. But there are times when believers receive a, a special provision of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. That's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, For I, I, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and, he says, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. Now, there's a great example of that, how the Holy Spirit provided just what Peter and John needed in Acts chapter 4. They were gathered before the Sanhedrin. And that was the, the kind of like the court of that day. Those were the, the rulers and it included the high priest and so forth. And here's what Luke says about that in Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed Peter and John in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or what name have you done this? They had healed this man that had come to the temple. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man was made well, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, name this man stands before you in good health. He didn't stop there. He went on to say, this is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which, who became the chief cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now that took boldness. These men standing before this group of people who were very mad at them, very angry with them, and they said, you crucified your Messiah, and Jesus is the only one who can save. Well, what was the response? Verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize that these men had been with Jesus. They saw an evidence of God's power working in their lives that these men that they thought were just hicks, they knew nothing. And the boldness with which they stood before this powerful crew. And guess what happened when Peter and John went back to the congregation? What do you think they said? Oh, that was really scary. We better not do that anymore. Oh, no. Verse 29 of that chapter, it says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, 
Verse 31 says, The place where they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. So when Peter and John really needed that power, the Holy Spirit gave them that boldness. And that's the confidence that that we can have as well, that God will give us that boldness as He fills us with His power, enable us to boldly proclaim His Word. Now Paul, he's standing soon before, not the Jewish Sanhedrin, but he's about to stand before the Roman emperor. Okay? That was even greater power than the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Do you think there might have been just a little bit of apprehension, knowing the power of the Roman emperor? And yet Paul is confident as he faces his trial. He says, I, I know that, that this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Why was he so confident? Certainly one reason is because people were praying for him, right? The congregation was praying for him, but I think also he was confident because of the promise of Jesus that was read from Matthew this morning. Let me read that again from Matthew chapter 10. He says, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts. They will scourge you in the synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. What did Jesus say? But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I can't help but think that that was in the back of Paul's mind as he was about to stand before the Roman emperor. What did Jesus say? You're going to be brought before governors. You're going to be brought before kings. You're going to be scourged in the synagogue. But do not worry what you're going to say because God will be with you. His Spirit will speak through you. Don't be concerned. Don't be worried. I think that was one of the things that gave the Apostle Paul confidence. He was going to be brought before the emperor. Oh, what did Jesus say? The Spirit of your Father will give you the words to say. And then notice in verse 20 of our text, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Notice that according to my earnest expectation, about to stand before the Roman emperor, do you get the sense he was looking forward actually to that? The phrase earnest expectation gives the picture of stretching the neck in anticipation of what is to come. I think if that was me and I was relying on my own flesh, I would be 
shaking in my boots. And yet Paul says, I look forward to the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ even before the Roman emperor. My earnest expectation is that I will be bold in that situation, whether by life or by death. Have you ever worried what you're going to say in a difficult situation? Only to experience that God was so clearly present there with you that He gave you the words to say. I've had that experience many times in ministry. I've asked myself, okay, what am I going to say now? How am I going to face this situation or that situation? And often I can look back and say, you know what, Lord? I hadn't thought of that. But you gave me words at that time. Your Spirit was speaking through me. And I just say, Lord, to you be the glory and the praise. That's what Jesus promised. We can rejoice in that. Joni Yoder wrote for Our Daily Bread some years ago. She said, most people own a calendar or an appointment book in which they record details of future commitments. Christian friend of mine uses one in the opposite way. He doesn't record key activities until they've taken place. He says, here's his approach. Each morning he prays, Lord, I go forth in your strength alone. Please use me as you wish. Start your day that way. See what happens. Lord, I go forth in your strength alone. Use me as you wish. Then she says, whenever he accomplishes something unusual or difficult, he records it in his daily calendar that evening. For example, she says, he may write, today I was enabled to share my testimony with a friend. Or today God enabled me to overcome my fear through faith. Or today I was enabled to help and encourage a troubled person. She says, my friend uses the word enabled because he knows he couldn't do these things without God's help. That's the way we ought to approach ministry. Serving the Lord like this man did. Lord, I go forth in your strength alone. Please use me as you Are you approaching your service to the Lord with the strength that He provides? Fruitful ministry comes through the prayers of God's people by the power of God's Spirit. And then thirdly, fruitful ministry comes in surrendering to God's plan. Paul expected to be released from prison as he writes these words. And yet he knew that his future was in the hands of God. Which is true for all of us, right? Our lives are in his hands. Our future belongs to him. And that's why Paul was prepared both for living and for dying. Paul says if he died, he knew that the result would be gain. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ, even now as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life 
or by death. For to me, he says, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. That sounds pretty strange to the world, doesn't it? When someone dies, we say, what a, what a loss. What a tragic loss. What a horrible thing. And yet, what does Paul say? When you live for Jesus, what is death? To die is, is gain. Obviously, that would be the case for the Apostle Paul, right? In departing from this world, he'd be leaving behind a world of sin and suffering. By entering heaven, he would be with Jesus. It's no wonder he says in verse 23 that that is very much better. Verse 23, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to be with, depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. What could be better for a Christian than to be in the presence of Jesus? Huh? I remember Einie Miking from our church years ago. She said, People talk about the pearly gates and the streets of gold. She said, I don't really care about that. I just want to see Jesus, she said. (laughs) Isn't that the perspective? No, it'll be a glorious place. Heaven will be. But what will be, what will make heaven is to be with Jesus. So Paul could say to to die is is gain for, for himself. Is there a sense in which Paul's death could also be gained for the sake of the gospel? Could God use his death to further the gospel. It's interesting, before Paul was a believer, he stood there when Stephen was being stoned. He was there. He witnessed that. And we're told that in Acts chapter 8, that that he was in hearty agreement with Stephen being put to death. And then Luke goes on to say that on that day a great persecution went out against the church. People were scattered abroad to Samaria, Judea. And then it says in verse 4 of Acts 8, 8, Therefore those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. So Stephen's death resulted in believers being spread abroad and everywhere they went, they talked about Jesus. Was the gospel advanced through Stephen's death? You bet it was. You bet it was. And that's why the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of of the church. Think of that. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Some people have brought more people to Jesus through their death than through their life. Die is gain. So personally for Paul, but for the gospel as well. If Paul lived, then what would the result be? Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. It's interesting. He says, you know, to be with Jesus, that, that's better by far. To, to remain on is, 
is better for you. I don't know which one to choose. Surrender it to God, right? Lord, my, my life is in your hands. If, if I die, I, I go to be with Jesus. If I stay, what will that mean? Fruitful labor. Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And that did happen. He was released from that imprisonment. Ended up being martyred later. But he was convinced that God had more work for him to do. It's interesting to notice what Paul saw as his purpose for remaining on in the flesh. It wasn't to enjoy all that he worked for. It wasn't to complete his bucket list, all the things I want to do before I die. What was his purpose? His purpose was living for the sake of others. He rejoiced in the hope of being delivered from prison because it would give him more opportunities to bring joy into the lives of others by leading them to Jesus. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Is that how you view life? Do you live for Jesus by ministering to others? My friend Dave has a little card. J-O-Y. Some of you have received one from him. You know what that stands for? Jesus first. Others next. Yourself last. That's joy, isn't it? That's biblical joy. When you put the Lord first in your life, you serve others and yourself last. If we are going to find real joy in life, we need to live for something bigger, something greater, and something more important than ourselves. Because those who live for themselves, they do not know what real joy is. They think it's going to bring them joy. It doesn't work. David McCaslin says, Tom Knapp never won a race during his entire high school track career. He says, Tom was a pusher. It was his task to set the pace for his fellow team members who would then beat him to the finish line. When he ran a, a successful race, He was helping a fellow teammate to win. Are you helping a fellow teammate to win? There's someone on your team who needs you. Someone who needs you to encourage them and to challenge them in their walk with the Lord. And that was the heart of Paul's ministry. Wherever he went, he was seeking to help others, to equip others, to bring joy into the lives of of others. I'd encourage you, don't waste your life on yourself. Don't live as if the world revolves around you, that your desires and your goals and your aims and your happiness is is number one. That's wasting your life. Instead, invest your life. Invest your life in the lives of others. And you will bring joy into their lives. And you will experience the joy of knowing that your life counts. 
because you're making an impact upon the lives of others. The joy of fruitful ministry. May that be what we experience in our lives. Jesus first, others next, ourselves last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word today that you've given. Thank you for the example we see in the life of Paul as his joy was to live for you, Lord Jesus, to seek to bring others into a living relationship with you and to encourage them and strengthen them in their walk with you. Lord, do that work in our lives. Help us not to waste our lives, but to invest our lives in the work of your kingdom. For it is in Jesus' name.